Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Kim, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for all the good music over the years, man. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, it was a walk in the park. (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) What a walk in the park, though. Holy smokes. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to speak with you, Roy. Yeah, good to speak with you. And just before we went on the air, we were both talking about you and I being members of the same Survivors Club, the Heart Health, yeah. That's right, yeah. What year uh, did you have your episode? 2000. Okay, yeah, I was, I was after you for sure, but that's five years ago, so yeah, so we're so, uh, we're it's good we're here. We're happy I'm here. We're lucky. We're lucky we're here because we both yeah. have the same thing, right? The left anterior descending artery. Yeah, hundred percent block. Yeah. yeah, I think I had about. They said I had about fifteen minutes to go. Oh my god, that would have been it. So, oh and you god. probably were the same. Yeah, I uh, I was told mine was done on a Tuesday, and I was told a little bit later that I probably. Or I may not have made it to Friday. Same yeah, week. Okay. So, yeah. I was lucky because I didn't have a heart attack. Uh, I, they caught it just in time. Uh, oh, okay. You did have one, right? I did have a heart attack, yeah. 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 But you're good now. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you, you were going, hmm, something's not right here, something's not right, went in, and then they found it. Yeah, I was out for a bike ride, and uh, you weren't supposed to be talking about music. I was, uh, I was out for a bike ride, and it felt like somebody kicked me in the chest. And uh, mm-hmm. then I had it looked at, and then I went into denial, the guy thing. And yeah. eventually it wasn't, denial didn't work anymore. So, yeah, they fixed yeah. me. And 21 years you, later, everything's working fine. Okay, well, that's good Good to hear. I'm, I'm happy you're here, man. And you, you brought up a funny thing. We're supposed to be talking about music. There's a bunch of uh, Toronto musicians. We, we get together, and we have these these dinners. And we go to, like, a really cheap restaurant and, and uh, sit around and... and I swear, we used to talk about music, but for the first 15 minutes, we all, actually we go, okay, we got 10 minutes to talk about our health and our medication. Then we're going to go on and talk about other <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, my back, you know, this and that. It's, like, it's so funny that we never talk about music. And then we go on and talk about other things. But yeah. it's, it's good times. You yeah, know, yeah. It's really nice getting together with all of them. I'm sure it's a terrific time. And here you are. Your congratulations, uh, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Well earned. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Great, great music. Great music. Well, Honestly, great music, man. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, just as a musician, you just put your head down and and uh, start writing songs. I started doing that. Oh, it scared myself yesterday when I started thinking about when I wrote my first song it was forty nine years ago, and it was on the Isle of Rhodes in Greece. And then since then, it's been a, a fun night of just looking up and keeping your eyes open, keeping your ears open and your heart open and and letting that soak in and hopefully getting some songs written. It was a really fun process all, all those years. Yeah, I was reading your bio, and uh, you headed for Toronto at 16 years of age, right? Uh, 17, actually. 17? Moved to Toronto. Yeah, moved to Toronto, lived at around uh, King and Parliament Street in a house that uh, the whole band had. It was $150 a month rent for the whole house. <laughs> and we had three guys from the Don, who just got out of the Don Jail living next to us. And um, uh, yeah, we that band kind of broke up when the weather got nice because our refrigerator was outside the back of the house <laughs> because it didn't work. 
Yeah. And when the weather got nice, we couldn't keep food cold anymore. So everybody moved back to Sarnia. Except me, I, I say, no, that's, that's, that's kind of paying your dues, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most definitely it's and, paying your dues. Yeah, and l- luckily the guys next door really liked us. They, you know, we were from, these young kids from Sarnia were having one of our first or second meals. We, we've, uh, you, you're uh, rehearsing already in the house, and the door just swings open at dinner one night while you're having your whatever the craft dinner or rice and whatever we used to eat. Yeah. And these three guys just come down the hallway and they're like, "We're your neighbors, and you got something to drink." I'm like, "Uh oh," <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they're like, "You tell us, you tell us if anybody gives you a hard time, we're right next door." We're like, "Okay." <laughs> oh man, what beer can buy you? Eh? <laughs> Actually, you know, dare I say it was aftershave at that time. We didn't have any beer. We couldn't afford it. And, and they're like, give us something to drink. And they're like, we don't have anything to drink. They go, well, what do you got? And I said, I don't know. I got some aftershave upstairs. He goes, go get that. and uh, Strain it through a loaf of bread. Yeah, I guess so. I, I can't, you know, it's, it's hazy times back then, but I do remember that part. <laughs> So uh, you and you and I are sort of the same uh, vintage. I think you're a couple of years younger than me, not that many. I'm 69. Okay, so you're just a couple yep. of years younger than me. So in our uh, in our lifetimes, we've gone from being kids who waited for the latest 45 to appear at the store for around a dollar to new releases being available on YouTube and websites like Spotify, where where your new song mm-hmm. is is available. Um, <laughs> Has this changed just the business side of music or music itself? Because songwriting is a billion-dollar-plus Canadian music economy reality. Has, has technology changed just the business side, or has it changed music? Oh, sure. It's changed both. Um, it, it, it's changed the business for sure. Uh, although, for me, it hasn't really changed much, and I'll tell you why. Is because I always made my, any money that I made was made off live. Um, uh, you don't, you didn't make minimal amount off record sales. You, you roy- record royalties. Yeah. Or radio royalties, airplay royalties. Yeah. Um, but it was mainly a, a live thing for me. I think even the stone said that at one point, they said, you know, we only made money on our, on a few records where we've made our money is touring. So that, that scene in Canada has always been pretty healthy. Thankfully, Canadians really have supported Canadian talent. I, I really feel that. As far as how music has changed, I think we live in a... In a I'm going to quote somebody else here, a guy named Rick Beato. He's a YouTuber. We live in a day of sort of low-information music. Music is very simple. It's programmed a lot of the time now. It's just the process of making it is different. Um, if you take a Led Zeppelin song, for example, there's so many chord changes in one song. Whereas now you'll hear some hit song that's got kind of the beat and maybe three, four notes on a bass and then all this singing going on top. So music itself has really changed just out of maybe the economics of not being able to get bands together to pay them and stuff like that. Yeah. But I do really enjoy, right? I, I, I really enjoy watching music change. Um, when people ask me, I'm like, yeah, every generation says what they want to say in a different way. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I hope they keep doing that. So uh, just like back in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, the Sinatras and all that stuff into rock and roll, the beginning of rock and roll. And then in the, the, the you know, when hip hop comes along and, and sort of program pop and house music, all these other genres of music, it's, 
it's lovely watching this stuff keep sort of morphing itself because there's only 12 notes to work with that's that's what people don't understand so we have to sort of keep throwing them around in different ways yeah i've never been quite sure whether life leads music or music leads life it seems to be like almost interchangeable when i think of my good point yeah that's a good point i'd say i'd say the first but you know life leads music so yeah because were... that we have to get inspiration to make music, so mm-hmm. what you're going through in your life um, really does dictate that. I, do, I feel because mm-hmm. I remember when the um, British invasion started, uh, everybody wanted to speak with an English accent, and and there was this there was this different sound, and life headed in that direction. All of our lives, we were kids, we headed in that direction. It was really it dragged us, it pulled us in that direction, and we wanted to sound mm-hmm. like them, and we wanted to be like them. And, and I think as long as as long as we keep music in our lives, Kim, and you know you play it and you you write it, and it's it's fantastic music that you create. But as long as in some way we keep music in our lives, it makes life a more positive experience. It sure does. <laughs> here, here. I don't want to get too deep on you here. No, that's that's not that's fine. That that's well said. Well said. Really. You talked about you know if there's money to be made in the industry, it's going to be made when you're traveling when you're on the road. Um, the other part of it, not so much. So when you take on a project like The Big Fantasize, your first album mm-hmm. in 13 years, how do you start something like that? Did you, did you, is it a work in progress over many years, or which eventually makes its way to the studio? Or, uh, or is it something that you take on, say, one day you get up and you say, it's time to, start to write some new songs? That's a good question. Throughout my career, Roy, uh, early in my career, albums would happen like in 30 or 60 days. You, although we were touring musicians back then, so we'd be playing all the material, the music out at gigs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. roll into the studio. Now, uh, the things are done differently. Uh, the big fantasize is done uh, writing stuff at home over the course of a couple of years, as, as you mentioned. And I wasn't even going to do a new record until my producer, Greg Wells, who was in my band at 17, and then moved off to Los Angeles and recorded people like Katy Perry, uh, One Republic, I uh, had uh, hit songs by Keith Urban, uh, number one hit songs. He's, he's done really well. He did the soundtrack for The Greatest Showman, stuff like that. Wow, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he paid me a visit after my heart attack because uh, he's on his way back to Los Angeles, wanted to know how we were doing. We went for a little walk, and he said, are you doing anything? Are you writing? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm writing. But he's a busy guy. I'm not going to say, hey, you know, will you listen to my stuff? But he said, why don't I have a listen to your stuff? And I said, well, okay, great. If you can give me some feedback. So I gave him the USB key of shame, and off he goes. And uh, about a month later, he's like, I love all these songs. He says, will you come to Los Angeles and record them at my studio? I'm like, dude, I can't, I can't afford you. He goes, no, 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 we'll worry about all that later. He says, come on down, and, and let's record. So that's kind of how I went about doing that. So And that whole process, once that moment happened, which was kind of terrifying, taking on a recording another record, because um, there's, there's a lot of work involved, a lot of emotional work a lot of physical work uh it's all consuming you lose track of of what's going on in the world you lose track of your family and friends because you're just constantly thinking about all that stuff um that took about two years and we finished it just shortly before the pandemic no it's just amazing the music is so good and i I really wanted to know how that came about yeah, because I hear oh, different, I hear different stories from different musicians about how they construct and how they create music. For some people, it's almost like a technical experiment. For others, it's something from the heart. 
Uh, and it's, mm-hmm. it's always always interesting to find out. Let me go back to something else we talked about a couple of minutes ago, and that is whether music leads life or life leads to music. Do you think there's such a thing as generational generational music, or, or is is music just beyond generational? Like a 20-year-old will listen to one of your songs from 30-odd years ago and start jumping around. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing that that happens. I'll tell you, when we... When we play gigs, sometimes we play these summer festivals across Canada or, or certain resorts, and and half the audience is are the kids of the people who used to come see me. Wow! You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's neat, and they're holding up vinyl of my first record and stuff huh. like that, and they know the stuff. So I, I'm not sure whether that answers your question, but it does. But I I think. Yeah, I mean, I listen to music from different generations. You know, I'll listen to music that was my parents' generation. I'll throw on Sinatra or whatever, and uh, then I'll throw on something uh, a little more modern. Um, So, you know, I'll throw throw on Justin Bieber because the guy's just so (laughs) talented to me, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know know it's kind of cool for older people to put a hate on him, but whenever they do that, I always go, if that kid was your son, you'd be so proud of him. He's so, such a great singer. He's so talented. He's worked so hard. And, and you know, if you, if you gave your kid at 17 hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, there's a good chance he might screw up here and there once in a while, too. So. <laughs> I've always believed that envy is a great compliment. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, sure. you know. Hey, yeah. if you look, if you were to look back, and we have about a minute and just a bit here, so sure. let's go back to you being the seventeen-year-old who leaves home, and uh, and you're going on to go to Toronto to get into the music business. Did you have any expectation, any realistic expectation at that time? When you look back at that kid today, what do you see? Well, what I see is when I got to Toronto, there used to be a bar called the Gasworks, and I think it's actually mentioned in the movie Wayne's World. And the Gasworks was a bar in Toronto that, that all the rock bands played. And I remember going, man, I will have made it in the music business if we played the Gasworks ever. I just remember thinking that, that that's, that's as high as the bar gets. Pardon the pun. but uh, you know. um, I never thought that it would go on this long. I thought, you know, 30 years ago, man, I, w- I would have been applying to be a groundskeeper at a resort somewhere. And I like working outdoors, and I like getting my hands dirty. So I didn't think music would go on, but it, it did, and I'm grateful for that. Man. So uh, in about 30 seconds, what's uh, what's ahead now for you? What are you going to um, do? Well, I'd like to get back touring. I'd, li- I'd like to see this music business co- come alive again um, and not just drive in theaters. But uh, I think in 22, hopefully I'll get back out on the road and feel good enough to do it. As you know by now, I would imagine most of you know this, that in Alberta, there will be no more contact tracing as of the 16th of August. If you test positive for COVID, it doesn't mean you have to quarantine. They still recommend it, but you will not have to quarantine, self-quarantine. And, uh, yeah, that's got some doctors, it's got some folks in this country uh, energized and uh, critical. But also, on the other side of the country, in New Brunswick, as I tweeted out earlier today, New Brunswick has taken steps beyond that. New Brunswick, essentially, is wide open with uh, pre-COVID realities. There are criticisms about New Brunswick's decision. So, uh, there's some questions I want to ask about this. 
and other questions that have to do with, as we like to say on this program, where health and politics intersect at the intersection of health and politics. And joining us for that program is uh, Dr. David Jacobs. He's the chair of the Ontario Specialists Association. He's president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. We're always glad to have uh, Dr. Jacobs join us. Dr. Jacobs, thank you very much for coming on the show. And what's your opinion, if I may ask you just out of the gate first, what are your thoughts on the decision taken by Alberta and the decision taken by the province of New Brunswick? What are you thinking? Well, here's what I'm thinking. I think that every province has a very different reality in terms of uh, their socioeconomics, in terms of population density, in terms of uptake of the vaccine, in terms of prevalence of the virus. Um, And it's very important for us to uh, pay attention to the fact that not every place is the same. Uh, Not every place is Toronto, not every place is Montreal. Uh, so we, we do have to respect the fact that different areas have different realities. And we also have to respect the fact that the public health officers have an army of epidemiologists working with them, trying to figure out what's safest for their population. Okay. Now, we are going to, if we're not already there, and in some places we are, obviously, we are going to be in a situation where the COVID virus and its various mutations, or variants, if you prefer, are going to be just an endemic reality. Uh, Alberta is clearly seeing it as as that. New Brunswick, similarly. Many jurisdictions in the United States are. Uh, and, and I hear people say, well, we should listen to the medical officers of health. They'll be the ones who make the intelligent decision. And then sometimes I hear the very same people challenge the medical officers of health, such as Dr. Dina Henshaw in Alberta. Where do you think, when do you think we'll be at that line, that position, when we can say, okay, it's endemic now, we'll treat it as another communicable disease. Maybe more challenging than the annual flu, but essentially, it's another communicable disease. When will we be there? Well, so, we're already there, and we've been there for a very long time. Uh, COVID is now endemic to North America. It's not going anywhere. So, the question isn't whether or not it's going to be endemic. The question is, are we at a point where we've done everything that we possibly can to minimize its impact on hospital resources and on the health of the general population. And in order to do that, um, there's really only one thing that we must 100% do, and that's vaccinate. Because once we're vaccinated, given the fact that this is an endemic virus, then we've done really what we can do and then we have to decide all right how are we going to live with this the problem that we have right now is that we've done an excellent job vaccinating but we are not completely there yet we still have large pockets of people who are just never going to get vaccinated and then we also have large pockets of people who have difficulty accessing vaccination Uh, whether it be mobility language barriers financial barriers Uh, there are a lot of barriers for some people to get vaccinated. So the real key for us to get back to as close to normal as we possibly can is massive, massive uptake of the vaccine. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get into the argument or the question with you about why we should vaccinate. You and I are in agreement on that. And I already receive hundreds of emails from people who are not in agreement. I don't want to add to that list of emails. 
they all they know who they are. They I think they understand. Oh, I shouldn't go there. No, I'm not going to say they understand what they should do because that'll result in emails. <laughs> <laughs> so let me. I'm just going to get out of the thin ice now and head through to the more secure territory of asking you this. Uh, do you believe, and you and I have talked about politics involved with health care, and you said to me on the air that you believe that the majority of people in health care are politically more to the left than they are to the right. Okay, so understanding that, has the approach to fighting COVID, let's go back to the beginning, to 2020, has the approach to fighting COVID been scientific or has it been more political? So, it's very interesting. The approach to fighting COVID uh, by the majority of the world has been scientific insofar as it's been recognized as a communicable disease um, and it has uh, it, it resulted in a tremendous amount of research. I've never seen so many journal articles being printed at one time. And it's also resulted in this huge push for a vaccine. We've never been able to develop a vaccine that's as effective as this as quickly as we have. So science has pushed a lot of it. But then we've also seen areas where politics got involved, and we've seen that in terms of renaming uh, it from the Wuhan virus to uh, COVID-19. We've seen uh, the variants renamed from the regions where they've come from to, uh, to, to Greek new, uh, letters. And that's very, very new to us. And a lot of that is pushed by political correctness in politics. Um, and you can understand why China would say, well, we don't want it to be associated with us because of all the negative ramifications of it. Then you flip to local politics and you look at Canada. And, you know, we had all sorts of rules at the beginning that made absolutely no sense. So starting off with uh, the borders, calling, saying shutting borders was racist. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, shutting borders is the first response that you should do for any pandemic. So... It's been a bit of a hodgepodge, but I'll, I'll tell you that for the most part, science has been driving the vast majority of the good decisions that we've been making over time. Okay, so now my feeling has been that politicians have crossed over into healthcare, and healthcare providers have crossed over into politics, often to the benefit of no one, and and that's been that has been one of my concerns, and I've heard it. You know, I mean, we have a health minister who's a. Uh, She's never had anything to do with being a medical professional, uh, Professor um, Minister Haydu, but she makes medical pronouncements, and and I, I don't want to hear it from her. I want to hear it from you. But moving on uh, diagonally here at our intersection of health and politics, so now we have the Delta variant, Dr. Jacobs, and we keep hearing messages about how much more transmissible it is than others. And there's the story out of Massachusetts that... Um, I think it was 72 or 74 percent of people who were surveyed in one particular area or tested in one particular area of, uh, of Massachusetts who had uh, the Delta variant were also double vaxxed. And that raised a couple of things, a couple of points. Number one, people who were, who were anti-vaxxers were saying, see, see, what's the point? Because those people have been have been infected. <laughs> so I'm heading back to the thin ice now. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Let me jump on the thin Yeah, ice please, please, it, save me. Because that thin ice is incredible. Well, no, I'm, I'm taking you down with me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for a swim. Okay. Um, the, there, there's the old question, you know, people are complaining about their, uh, 
the, their, their, their health care that was delivered to them. And the doctor says, are we talking? And they're like, yeah. He said, did you die? No. Okay, then I did a good job. <laughs> so, and, that, and that's the idea with the vaccine. So, yes, um, and, and I, we want to be serious about this. So you can catch COVID after you've been vaccinated. But when you catch COVID after you've been vaccinated, I'm never going to see you. You're not going to develop a bad enough case that you end up in the ICU. A certain number of people might get a COVID pneumonia from it. But most, but it, it's an infinitesimally small number who will end up uh, requiring hospitalization after they've been vaccinated. And that is point number one, two, three through ten as to why you need to get vaccinated. Now, let's flip to the other side. With this new Delta variant, we are seeing that it's being picked up by uh, people who have been vaccinated and spread by people who have been vaccinated. So... That's why when we look at what hap what's happening in Alberta and New Brunswick, we're going to have to be a little bit careful because there are still a large number of people who either can't be vaccinated because they're 12 and under or won't be vaccinated because they don't want it or uh, have been inadequately vaccinated because they've only had one dose or are immunosuppressed. So if the entire population can still pass it to those people, then the really only protection that we're going to have for those people are one of two things. Either more people get vaccinated so we can create herd immunity around them, or we might have to at some point look at uh, wearing masks uh, as we see spikes in cases. I don't like that, but that's the reality that we're living in. All right, Dr. So, Jake. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, finish so, your thought, please. No, 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 no. That, 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 well, my thought is please get vaccinated. Yeah. I, I I agree with you. So when we get to the issue, Dr. Jacobs, of mixed messaging that confuses people, one example is the Delta variant concern. We heard from the very beginning that it was in Britain, and there was a great concern that Britain was going to see a huge spike of cases, and maybe their unlocking of society was too early and they'd have to wait. Well, yesterday there was um, news, a news story, that uh, as British society opens up, the rates of COVID infection are leveling off. Not what those who were worried about, the opening we're expecting. And so then you can get, get people who are saying, well, you were telling me it was going to be bad. You were telling me the modeling was going to see things really turn ugly. And here we are a couple of weeks later, the actual numbers away from the modeling are telling me everything is leveling off. How do you, I mean, how do you align that that? That issue, that thinking. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you come to grips with mixed messaging that confuses people? Well, uh, a few things that I want to point out. Um, first of all, uh, we're actually in a better situation than the UK. The UK is predominantly protected by AstraZeneca, whereas in Canada we are predominantly protected by Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer is much more uh, has much more efficacy against the Delta variant uh, than the uh, AstraZeneca does. So whatever we see in the UK, we can expect to see things even better in Canada. Now, in terms of the mixed messaging, this is something that's been a problem throughout the pandemic. What epidemiologists do is they model data. In order to model data, you make certain assumptions. 
every assumption that you make introduces an error or a or a potential error into the final analysis. So the more errors that you introduce, the wider the spread of what you're predicting could be. So you can end up with models, as we've seen before, that predict absolute disaster uh, that never comes true. Uh, and it's very encouraging to see that that's that that things are leveling off in the UK because that's the difference between modeling and real world data. So the real world data is going to suggest to us that maybe things won't be so bad. I can tell you right now at at the hospital, I read out the emergency room on a regular basis and I read out the ICU. We're seeing the numbers of people presenting with new COVID pneumonias it's just dropped precipitously. We're just not seeing anywhere near the numbers we had before. So this is good news, but I understand why people would be confused by it. So where, let, let's sneak media into this uh, intersection of health and politics. Let's sneak the media into this. How good a job is mainstream media doing reporting on developments with COVID, with the, uh, with the variants, with the entire story, is media reporting, do you think, incomplete, uh, too negative, or doing just fine? I actually think media is doing an excellent job and has been throughout the, the pandemic. I think that if we want to get back to the intersection of politics and health, the one place where we are finding media slipping a bit is stories like uh, Hinshaw in Alberta versus... Uh, the exact same measures being taken in New Brunswick. So there is a bias towards hammering um, conservative governments when they make a decision and ignoring uh, NDP or liberal governments uh, who make the exact same decisions. So we are, you know, that would probably be the only place that, where it's going to slide. And I can tell you with certainty that uh, New Brunswick is going to get a free pass and Alberta will, will, will continue to get hammered at the same time for doing the same thing. Okay, we have just l under a minute left. We know that we're going to be seeing the emerging of new variants, new mutations of COVID. It's just a fact of life. There may be some out there that we're not even aware of yet. Probably are, says the layperson. Uh, how do you think we should be dealing with the issue of emerging variants? What's the best way to do it? I think the, the, the most important principles that we need to have is that we have to accept the fact that, that we're not going to be able to be in full control of any viral outbreak. We're going to have to uh, celebrate the fact that we have vaccines and use them. We're going to have to accept the fact that we're going to need to have booster shots in all probability uh, if there's a particular, particularly nasty variant that comes around. Um, that having been said, we also have to realize that our economy is important, our children's education is important, right. and the mental health of people is important. Okay. So we're going to have to balance all of those. Okay, I'll let you go with this. Uh, uh, Dr. Jacobs' email just came in from Pamela. Thank goodness for Dr. Jacobs. He is still a light in our lives, one of the few. Well, that's so very kind. Thank you so much. Derek Clapton, uh, 76 years old now, says he will not perform, quote, on any stage where there is discrimination against audience present. Uh, this is a statement he released on uh, Telegram, quote, 
unless there's a provision made for all people to attend, I reserve the right to cancel the show. So if there's vaccination proof required, Eric Clapton will not perform. Uh, And he was responding, the story goes on to say, directly to UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who announced this week that vaccine passports will be required at music venues across the country by late September. Now, you also know, and we spoke about this in the last half hour, and we will again, that France has decreed, or at least Macron, President France, supported by the lower house of the French government, have decreed that um, health workers have to be vaccinated by the 15th of September. And the French population, if they want to go to uh, venues like um, large malls, restaurants, theaters, I believe there's outdoor events included as well, they will have to be fully vaccinated or provide proof of a negative COVID test. So joining us uh, on the program is Alan Cross, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, consultant. His podcast is just fantastic. The ongoing history of new music and a new book to be released in September, The Science of Song, How and Why We Make Music. How are you, Alan? I'm good. I'm good. Um, the, The Clapton thing has got me kind of uh, confused, but you know we can go deeper into that. Please t- tell us why. Well, he had two jabs of the AstraZeneca shot, and there are there is evidence that some people will have an adverse neurological reaction to it if you have at some time been in your life a raging alcoholic. That was the case with Eric Clapton. So he says that he cannot play the guitar the way he used to because of the side effects that came from AstraZeneca, and as a result of his side effects, he believes that uh, the whole thing is, is, is awful and terrible, and that um, he's actually got uh, a friend whispering in his ear. His, this friend is Robin Monetti. He is uh, an Italian guy, an architect and film producer, and he is a apparently a very strong anti-vaxxer. So when Eric started talking about his problems, he obviously had a chat with his friend, Mr. Minotti, and he said, well, of course you're having problems because A, B, C, D, E, F, G. There you go. And this isn't the first time for Eric Clapton. He and Van Morrison wrote a song together, did they not? Well, Van Morrison came out earlier this year with an entire lockdown, anti-lockdown album with a series of songs that said that, you know, your sheep, uh, the government is intruding in our lives, it's ruining the economy, you know, why are these lockdowns happening, um, etc. I mean, it, it's, I, I don't know if they came out as anti-vax, but they certainly came out as what me worry, or why are you bothering to worry because everything's fine. You know, I, I don't understand this. I mean, we saw it in the United States where everybody just suddenly one day decided that, yay, it's over, we can throw away our masks. And I remember watching this thinking, uh, this seems to be, you know, George Bush and the aircraft carrier declaring mission accomplished again. Uh, same kind of thing with the U.K. Everybody had some big celebrations, and now uh, Boris Johnson said that uh, all kinds of music festivals and, and outdoor events could come into, could, could start up again on June the 21st. And, well, look what happened there. And, and, and now, uh, I guess it was last Monday, where they said, well, we're just going to have to soldier through. So I, I'm, I'm so confused as to these varying responses. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a huge amount of mixed messaging going on. It seems to be almost the message of the day at times. It it does. And, you know, just because you're famous, like Eric Clapton, 
you know, how in that does that make you an authority on, on, on this sort of thing? So it's, you know, and again, considering the issues that he's had in his past, I mean, he was a heroin addict for a very long time. He was a hardcore alcoholic for a very hard time. This man is 76 years old. He's lived a very hard rock and roll life. Um, you would expect that even without, you know, uh, you know, at 76, you, you're going to end up getting, you know, feeling the effects of your rock and roll lifestyle, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I, I do. Do you think there's going to be much in the way of, uh, I don't want to say copycat, but similar reactions and responses from people in the, uh, in the rock and roll environment? Well, we're starting to see a few. Uh, I mean, Ted Nugent's been going on and on and on about this for a very long time, calling this a hoax. And then he got sick for 10 days and almost put him out. And then he managed to recover. And he says, see, I took a bunch of vitamin D and ate some vegetables. Well, you know, the, <laughs> we, yeah. you know, it, it, I'm it, with you. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm stuttering because I, I just have no words for this. And it drives me absolutely crazy that people are willing to listen to celebrities and musicians and actors and whatever, rather than certified medical professionals. There was a guy, there was a doctor that went on uh, on a viral this past week where he was talking to somebody who wasn't going to get the vaccine. And they went back and forth about who had the uh, more valid information, the more proper information. And this guy was a truck driver. And he says, at the end of the argument, he says, well, Doc, your opinion is just as valid as mine. And the answer is no. No, no it's not. I went no, to school for seven years to learn about this stuff. You're a truck driver. You're, reading, you're getting all your information on Facebook. Yeah, yeah you don't put the, uh, the doctor into the 18-wheeler. No. Uh, you know, I saw another New Yorker cartoon. A guy stands up on a plane saying, I've lost confidence in the ability of the pilot to fly this plane. Who here wants me to fly the plane? Yeah. Everybody's putting up their hand. Yeah. Uh, one more question for you, Alan, and I do appreciate the time. Always good talking to you. Uh, do you. What's going to happen as far as concert schedules are concerned? Uh, understanding what Boris Johnson has said and the concerns that are reemerging about this uh, Delta variant, but what's going to happen as far as concerts and live performances are concerned? Okay, we got to look at a couple of things. And the first thing is the difference in risk tolerance between the United States and Canada. The United States is going full steam ahead. Live Nation has announced that they're going to stage about a thousand shows between now and the end of the year with a $20 all-in ticket. And these are our big bands. I mean, it's, it's you know, big bands like, like Kiss, for example, are, are, are part of this. They need to get people into the Live Nation-owned amphitheater. So 20 bucks all-in, you're there. Here in Canada, it's like, yeah, well, we're going to be a little more careful. Uh, the Horseshoe in Toronto, for example, which has a, uh, a capacity of 450 people, had an event, their first event since the, um, since the pandemic, on Friday night. Uh, they sold, they could sell a maximum of 90 tickets. Everybody was seated at a table six feet apart, and uh, the front uh, tables were, were nine feet away from the stage. Um, and, and we're going to see a few more, you know, socially. There's, there's a series of concerts coming up in Burles Creek, north of Toronto. Again, you know, limited capacity, social distancing involved. Uh, we do have a number of shows, probably close to, I'm going to guess between 75 and 90 shows scheduled for various places across Canada, major venues between now and the end of the year. And that would be limited capacity with, you know, masking and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, in the United States, they're, they're going full steam ahead. In the UK, they're kind of, there was a, uh, I think it was a 
show, a big festival this weekend with with 40,000 people. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to be watching this all very, very closely. And we, Canadians, will make our decisions based on the U.K. and U.S. experiments. I would not, however, expect things to be much, you know, normal, much resembling normal until summer 2022. So the cost of food in this country continues to rise. You have no trouble getting that information from people who go food shopping. It's usually volunteered. And I understand it's not likely to change for the better for a while. There's also in the United Kingdom some concern about government ministers saying that the security of the food supply lines are uh, not is not uh, guaranteed as store shelves in some areas are bare or almost bare and it's the result of something called the pingdemic. I had a conversation about the cost of food a few days ago and it, I was told that the cost of basic food has risen sufficiently sharply that it's changed the life for the family of the person I was speaking with, sufficiently so. They're considering whether they can afford a vacation before the end of the next month. Professor Sylvain Charlebois joins us. He's a professor of food distribution and food at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. His research is food supply chain management. And in April, the professor predicted a $700 increase in food cost for the average Canadian family this year. Professor Charlebois, thank you for coming back on the program. Does that $700 figure still hold? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. Um, Actually, our prediction, our forecast was actually published in December uh, with Canada's food price report. So every year with the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan, and the University of British Columbia, we actually released Canada's food price report. It was our 11th edition. And for 2021, we were expecting the highest increase uh, in 11 years, so almost $700 uh, per family. And uh, now we're into July, almost in August, and we're very, very comfortable with our forecast. Unfortunately, we were expecting prices to go higher particularly uh, at the meat counter uh, with bakery products uh, and, uh, and vegetables as well. And, and the two major factors affecting all of this, obviously there's COVID. Uh, COVID is basically making everything more expensive across the supply chain from both ends of the food continuum. And the other factor, of course, is climate change uh, with droughts, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reports out there suggesting that uh, Mother Nature is not necessarily cooperating with farmers in some areas, uh, which is really pushing uh, commodity prices higher these days. Uh, if you're a farmer and you have something to sell, you make good money. But the problem is that a lot of farmers won't have anything to sell, which is why, well, prices are going up. Yeah, so when you when you talk about climate, and we I've I've read and, and seen reports of what's going on in Western Canada, and it's not a good thing with the drought. Uh, is there uh, is there a silver lining in the in this somewhere, or are we just looking at a different paradigm? Well, I mean, droughts aren't uh, new out west. Uh, I mean, you talk to any farmers, they they are fully aware of of climate change and 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 drought spells and things like that and, and actually some some farmers actually deal with floods on the other side of the spectrum um what's really unusual this year is is the intensity of the heat i mean you're you're seeing uh areas in canada with uh with 50 degree weather i mean this is something we've never seen before and it's getting hotter and uh what's going on out 
in seals is that some uh, some grains are actually just burning essentially so the quality if you have if you can harvest anything quality could be compromised so i mean the silver lining is basically this and not all farmers will be affected by what's going on and they'll make actually good money but unfortunately a lot of farmers won't uh, make good money the uh the reality though is that we are dealing with global markets if uh, if we can't grow our own grains uh, or Canada can grow grains itself, you can always uh, rely on other markets to, uh, to offer some supply. So there's, there's that going on as well. We need to keep in mind that it's not a catastrophe. It's just, you know, it's a little bit more difficult this year. Okay, now you wrote in a in a uh, column in the Toronto Star in April, once grains are affected, and you just mentioned grains, once grains are affected, livestock sectors producing well-loved products like chicken, pork, and beef will likely be affected as well. Grains are grains core to, uh, well, pretty much everything? Uh Actually, yes, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I mean I just, at the start. As, as uh, I was asking the question, I thought, yeah, it is pretty much everything. I suspect that your question is the rhetorical, but uh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> people think of uh, of the West as a as a as an economy to supply grains to the rest of the world. But guess what? In a lot of products we buy that has been manufactured, there's some Canada in it, even though the the product was actually imported from somewhere else. And so these processors are paying more for the inputs. The other issue, of course, is meat. You need to feed livestock. And what's unusual again this year, which is something we have we haven't seen before, is the fact that chicken uh, is up eight percent since January, not year to year, January seven months ago, uh, and that's really bizarre because chicken typically you expect like a two three percent a year with chicken. Now we're up to eight, and chicken is like is like the tide if. It, within the trifecta of meat, you got pork, beef, and chicken uh, at the meat counter. If chicken goes up, everything else goes up. So uh, your listeners must have noticed that beef is more expensive and pork is more expensive as well, on average about 5%. That's really what is unusual about 2021 so far. Yeah. I bought uh, six steaks the other day, and I didn't go... Uh you know, it didn't go wild. I didn't go to the butcher shop and order special cuts. So I got what was packaged, and they looked nice. But six steaks, 85 bucks. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's not unusual to see that. So so consumers uh, who are uh, uh, who have a tight budget will be a little bit more careful at the meat counter. You can still, you know, get some good deals at the meat counter. For example, you may actually... You know, get some deals, uh, unadvertised deals, by the way, at the meat counter uh, at 25% off, 30% off, even 50% off. If you really look closely, uh, they'll encourage you to eat that steak that night. I encourage your listeners to do that more and more. And those and those steaks, those products are, are, are still very good. Um, the other thing that we're seeing right now is that a lot of consumers are starting to uh, trade uh, between animal proteins and vegetable proteins. Vegetable proteins tend to be uh, like lentils and chickpeas, for example. They tend to be uh, actually lower uh, in price. Um, fish and seafood is actually getting more popular because it is expensive, but 
people are basically saying, well, if I have to pay uh, so much for beef, for example, why not try fish now? So there's a lot of that going on, too. Yeah. What's the basic advice then to the uh, to the food shopper who is trying to plan for the rest of the year? Visit more than one place. That's the first thing I would say. Because uh, there's, like I said, a lot of what I've noticed compared to past years is that, is that there are way more unadvertised deals out there. If you actually go into a grocery store, you'll actually find good deals unadvertised at times. So if you visit more than one place, you increase your chances of actually access to deals. The other thing I would advise your listeners to do is to visit the freezer aisle a little bit more often. Quality is not there as much, I, I agree, but nutritionally it's the same. And the quality has gone up. Prices are not as volatile in the freezer aisle. So keep that in mind when you go into a grocery store. Okay, one final question for you. What's going on in England with the pandemic, with the government ministers expressing concern about the, uh, about the supply chain for food? Yeah, well, it's, first of all, England is an island, so <laughs> their logistical reality is a bit different than ours. Uh, secondly, I mean, I mean, island countries tend to be a, a, a little more concerned about supply chains. Japan is the same thing. Australia is the same. Uh, and, and these countries tend to uh, view food security very differently. We're pretty lucky in Canada. We have access to uh, safe uh, products, safe food products. Uh, re- our, our, our supply chains are reliable. We saw that last year with the panic buying. There was still food a few days later. I mean, it's, it, we have an unbelievable food industry. And keep in mind, Roy, that relative to income, Canadians still have access to one of the cheapest food baskets in the world. Even though prices are going up 5%, I agree, it's a bit rough for people. But still, still today in 21, Canadians have access to affordable food compared to other countries. This phenomenon happening right now is affecting everyone in the Western world, not just Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.